Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Shireen Nishat returns to the program. The Broad in Los Angeles is exhibiting Shireen Nishat, I Will Greet the Sun Again, a career-spanning survey that places special emphasis on Nishat's address of her home country of Iran and her 2010's turn toward addressing the United States and the ways in which the U.S. has come to resemble Nishat's theocratic homeland. The exhibition was curated by Ed Chad and will remain on view through February 16th, 2020. Don't miss it. It's terrific. The excellent catalog was published by The Broad and Delmonico Prestel. Amazon offers it for $45. On the second segment, Melissa E. Buron joins me to discuss James Tiso. But before we get to this week's program, a giant thank you to all of you who filled out our biennial survey. It helps a lot. If you still want to help us out, please rate and review the show at somewhere like iTunes. Five-star reviews help a great deal. The algorithms are ever hungry. Shireen Nishat, after the break. This fall, for its 30th anniversary, the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University presents a union of three internationally acclaimed artists, all originally from Ohio and exhibiting together for the first time. Here, Anne Hamilton, Jenny Holzer, Maya Lin explores ideas of place, time, language, and perception through world premiere and site-specific works in the Wex galleries. Additional off-site components activate spaces at Ohio State and around the city of Columbus. Here is on view through December 29th. For more information, go to wexarts.org. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University presents Art for a New Understanding, Native Voices, 1950s to Now, the first exhibition to chart the development of contemporary indigenous art in the United States and Canada. For generations, Native North American artists have exhibited work mostly outside of mainstream art institutions. Native Voices begins to remedy that division presenting approximately 60 works of art in a wide variety of media by Native American artists from many nations and regions. The exhibition examines the practices and perspectives of the most influential Native artists and their important contributions to American art, thus reassessing the place of indigenous art within the art historical canon. On view August 29th through January 12, 2020 at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Visit nasher.duke.edu voices. In Recording Artists, a new podcast series by the Getty, art historian Helen Molesworth explores the lives and work of six women artists, Alice Neal, Lee Krasner, Betty Saar, Helen Frankenthaler, Yoko Ono, and Ava Hesse. Rare audio-taped interviews from the 1960s and 70s, plus new interviews with contemporary artists and art historians, help us unpack what it meant, and still means, to be a woman making art. Binge the entire series now, at getty.edu slash recordingartists. His art captured the zeitgeist of Impressionist-era society, fashion, and politics. So why isn't he as famous as Monet or Degas? See new scholarship revealed about 19th century art's best-kept secret in James Tiso, Fashion and Faith, on view now at San Francisco's Legion of Honor Museum. Navigate the winding path of Tiso's life as you explore the exhibition galleries, passing through his complicated friendship with Degas a decade of expatriation in London, and a love affair with a tragic ending. Discover Tiso's spectacular world in James Tiso Fashion and Faith, on view now at the Legion of Honor Museum. Head to legionofhonor.org to plan your visit. And we're back. Shireen Nishat, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. 
Let's start by talking about the groupings of photographs that are in the show at the Broad. This may be your third time on the podcast, but these are works we have barely talked about on tape. I'm thinking of works like The Book of Kings, Our House is on Fire, and The Home of My Eyes. These are series of pictures that you have installed salon style from from you know nearly floored and nearly the top of galleries on on facing walls couple things about that is there a relationship between the way you have decided to install those series of pictures and the way especially back in the 1990s you installed video installations on two screens that face each other well, definitely there is this uh, sculptural quality to this installation that uh, comes from my interest in breaking the narratives into parts. But I think the most important thing I should say is that if the earlier photograph, like Woman of Allah, were concerned with certain protagonists and they became you know, self-portraits or you know individual characters that I was trying to embody or take photographs of, the later series, such as The Book of Kings or Our House is on Fire or The Home of My Eyes, is no longer about a single protagonist, but communities, groups of people. I would even go as far as saying they're about portraits of a nation in, in some way. And so therefore, um, just like in my video rapture that once I took this exercise of never bringing the camera to a single character, it was always about the mass. I think with the Book of King, which was so much about the, the sort of the euphoric revolution, such as the Arab Spring, the Green Movement, where there was this notion of activism that, you know, of course became problematic, but it really regarded an uprising by a group of young people. So therefore, I felt that it was really important to depict the narrative as groups, you know, now you have a group of uh, activists, you have a group of villains, you have a group of bystanders, which we call masses. And later, Our House is on Fire was also in the aftermath of the Arab Spring. And uh, I went after the elderly individuals who not only came from impoverished communities, but they were suffering from some form of tragedy in the aftermath of the Revolution. So it was not, it was about a collective sense of grief. And then with the home of my eyes, it was me like really interviewing local people from Azerbaijan to share with me the meaning, the concept of home uh, as a country that is known to be a home to multi ethnicities, people of different religions, languages. Um, and yet they, you know, from Armenians to Russians to Turks to Persians, yet call it home. So for me, again, that project became about creating a collection of portraits that sort of indicated that kind of diversity in this country. And then the last is the land of dreams. Again, for me, was like really creating something that is about a portrait of America in a way that I see it as an Iranian immigrant, the faces of the native Indians, to the white people, to Hispanic, to the black, to, you know, Asians, all of the different faces that together create this culture. So you see what I mean? The, the evolution of the photography from being single portraits of myself playing different roles to becoming more of a storyteller and having a more narrative edge to my work sort of just sort of felt right to break down the photographs into multiples as opposed to really have one picture say everything. 
You mentioned uh, The Home of My Eyes from 2015. That's a series of pictures made in and about uh, Azerbaijan. I understand why you take pictures of groups of people and install them together. Is there something that you like about a viewer of the artwork physically being surrounded two sides on three sides by the portraits? Is there something about that physical space, that physical act of having of a viewer having to turn around and look left, look right, look forward that is important to you? Yes. I mean, talking about the home of my eyes, I, I feel there's really strong emotions in these faces that somehow also with their body postures, the hand postures being sort of referencing Christian religious paintings, which I did very clearly borrow from El Greco, for example. And yet, you know, they're all from you know, Muslims to Christians to whatever. But I thought that uh, I wanted to create a space that is almost like a religious space, like a chapel, where the audience are surrounded by these gazes that are looking directly at them in almost like a praying position, you know. If I could be so cheesy and say that there's a level of humanity and emotion that it's resonated from these faces and then the audience standing in the middle of these gazes, that to me is really compelling. It, it almost feels like, a, to me, a, like a religious experience. And I, I think in the same way that our house is on fire, unfortunately, all of these series are more in numbers. We only could afford certain amounts in this exhibition. But if, for example, with Our Houses on Fire as well, if you had the entire series of all these elderly people in tears, actually real tears, and again, these are not models, these are real people, including the Azerbaijan people, there is something really chilling to be, you know, surrounded by the pain and the, the, the gazes of these people who are really like suffering, you know, and, and there's something you that affects you, not in just pure sympathy, but the fact that we share some of that same pain, you know, and I don't know what it is about. I just don't, I just think the numbers of the images are really important because again, it, it goes away from an experience that it's very singular, but it becomes very collective, if I could say. And I, I, I feel like it is a little bit like my video installations where I really put my audience in this emotional, psychological, spatial, environmental experience that they can escape, you know, once they're in there. And oftentimes the sound of the video spilling over in these rooms makes it even more alive. So there is just kind of a cry of humanity, I guess. I mean, I, I just don't know. Depends on the audience, but I, I really feel there's a lot of emotions in this group installations. I, I, I think that runs through the show at the Broad. There is emotion and emotional intensity in every gallery. That's really hard hard to miss. So these series since 2012 have been in, in, in some ways a return to portraiture for you. I mean, there had been portraits in your work in the 1990s, of course, especially of, of you and your son Cyrus. But mostly you did other things for a while. So what brought you back to portraiture in 2012 
And why was portraiture the mode of address you, you chose in those years? It's a really good question because, as you said, you're right, at, at some point after making Woman of Allah, I moved on to making lots of video installations like Torbel and Rapture, etc. And then I went to filmmaking, Women Without Men. And so I took a very long absence of, you know, still photography, which for me was always about human portraiture. But what happens, I think that I started to change my relationship to still photography, thinking that I no longer have to look at them the way I used to, and that there could be a way of storytelling through the use of still photography and through portrait making. And in fact, as you can see in the Land of Dreams, for example, for the very first time, if before I kept my film work from video installations and portraiture, so photography separate, in the land of dreams, they all collapse into one project, meaning that the protagonist is a photographer and is going door to door taking people's portraits. In the video, that is, of Land of Dreams. In the videos, yeah. yeah. And, and supposedly the photographs that we have on display are photographs that she might have taken. So I thought it would be really interesting that the very art of portrait making, it becomes part of the larger narrative. It makes it very interesting. And, and how in a moment that you freeze an image, people turn into a monument, like a kind of timeless monument. And really, you could take a homeless person like we did in Albuquerque off the street and take his picture and he becomes like a god. It's like the portraits of human beings are, it's like the most powerful, powerful way of art making. And it's like, um, no matter how many millions of times people have been photographed, for me, the, and it's very interesting because I'm so obsessed with dreams that are so ephemeral and so forgettable so quickly. But with photographs, they're so permanent. You know, you really freeze a moment. And there's something about that and that one gaze that you capture at that moment, that certain emotion that is really powerful to me. So I, 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 I no longer feel that I do have to separate all my mediums and my interests, but they're spilling over one another in an interesting way. The photographs are becoming more narrative but they have different emotional impact on the audience than the videos would in a way that the video has to be experienced in 20 minutes. But a photograph in, in its physical way, the way that it talks to the you know, audience has a very different impact. And I like the two very distinct relationships between the audience, the still photography and the moving picture. I think they're totally different, but equally fascinating. We're going to talk about the recent video work a little bit later, but while we're still in photographs, I'd like to ask two things that go back to the 1990s. One of the neat things about this exhibition and and the catalog, which is terrific, is that it places your work, particularly of the 1990s, very much in dialogue with uh, Iran and Persia and not within kind of the globalist framework in which your work was so often discussed in the 90s and aughts. And as part of that, the Ed Shad, the, the curator of the exhibition and a, and a past man podcast guest, identified a 1992 doctoral dissertation that was important to women of Allah. And so far as I know, it's the first time that this dissertation has been tied to your work. It's titled Politics of Martyrdom in Post-Revolutionary Iran, 
Who wrote it? What did the dissertation address? And what did you take from it? A friend of mine, uh, actually, Ehsan Mansour, who uh, is someone I knew in Los Angeles when I was just in high school. Uh, we were about the same age, and he went on to study at Oregon and got his philosophy degree and moved back to Iran and started to teach at the university in, in Tehran. And at some point when I finally made a return to Iran, I met many old friends, including him. And what really interested me as I was really interested and faced with the aftermath of the revolution and the the transformation of the culture in in the aftermath of this uh, revolution. I was talking to a lot of people, interviewing them, reading certain books. And when I met him, he gave me his thesis that he had submitted for his, you know, postgraduate degree um, at Oregon University. And I remember reading that and, and I was just completely fascinated by his analysis in the the more sort of philosophical perspective on when someone becomes uh, obsessed and fully committed in an ideological and philosophical level to their religion in the way that they're so completely willing to 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 die and to basically commit violence etc and and he tried without being biased tried to analyze that kind of rationale in, in, in the notion, the fanaticism, but the way that the mind works of people who have that kind of, you know, faith. So as I was, you know, dreaming my own images that was going to relate to the Islamic revolution, after reading this paper, I decided that I will focus on the concept of martyrdom. And he never knew, actually, I did that. In fact, we've never had a conversation about it because I don't go back to Iran, so I don't see him. But, you know, for me, it was a really a fascinating way of entering the subject because it was approaching it from a very philosophical point of view. And again, it wasn't taking a judgment. And then further on, I, I, I was very interested that the women were as well a part of this whole rhetoric and this whole movement which was not part of his paper, but I found. Um, so I think his paper played a very major role in the very evolution of my ideas for the woman of Allah and him without knowing it. And of course, other influences as well, like amazing images that were in the newspapers of women that were, you know, marching with their guns or in the, in the war with Iraq, in the war zone, etc. that I found such a contradiction. So but so, yes, it's absolutely true that his paper was very instrumental for my thinking process. Is there a picture in the show that you think is a particularly good example of your engagement with his dissertation? Well, you know, like I said, his dissertation doesn't focus on a woman, which my work does. But I think, let's say, like, uh, obviously, all the ones with the guns, the, the ones with arms, are the ones that are more directly. But I would say faceless, you know, the one that I'm pointing the gun toward the audience. It's a very strong image or allegiance with wakefulness or rebellious silence. These are some of the images that that I think that are very much founded in some of my inspirations from what he wrote in his dissertation. I mean, there was another book called The Warrior 
woman of Allah, something like that. The warrior female, the warrior woman of Allah that I also read that I didn't find as interesting, but it was about now talk, topic of woman in relation to military and religion and of Islam, etc. So, but yeah, I think those few images I mentioned are more directly related to his paper. The exhibition also contains some studies for 1993's unveiling, uh, one of your early series. One of the studies on view, and indeed the first of these studies I've ever seen, includes the colors of the Iranian flag laid over a pair of feet. As far as I know, that's an idea you discarded, that you did not reference the Iranian flag directly in in kind of the 93-ish pictures, or really maybe in any in other series of pictures now that I think about it. What about that as a possibility, using the flag or the colors of the Iranian flag, intrigued you? And why did you decide not to do it? In those work, I have to mention that they were very, very first work of art I made that were originally shown. They were like Xerox, and I was just like writing on them and painting on them. And, and I showed them at Franklin Furnace, I think it was in 1993, at that moment, I was really playing with this idea of, you know, this whole identity issue of Iranians who are both Persian and now Muslims and considered a certain way and and how these two identity were not comparable, but in total conflict. And, and this idea of um, the using of the poetry of Furur, who's, you know, died in 1965 or seven and had nothing to do with the Islamic Revolution, overlaying on these images of contemporary Iranian women. So it was, for me, it was a little bit about going to the past and the present, the Islamic versus the Persian identities and the the problematics behind all of that. And to many degrees, all those paradoxes continue in my work and really was refined in The Woman of Allah. But with this series unveiling, it was really more exploratory and it was not yet to do with directly with the revolution for example you don't see any images of the arms the the gun it's only about the exploration of the body of the female body in respect to the veil and and the idea of shame and the idea of unveiling and uh, and and obviously the flag of iran because one thing that came with the revolution was the idea of all Islam being one nation as opposed to these divisions between the different countries where we as Iranians really like our boundaries as who we are and our history. And so this kind of this idea of eradication of a certain history of us by this revolution that tried to sort of, you know, eliminate a part of our heritage, which is really problematic for a lot of Iranian people. So those were my thinking process. But Again, I, I was just beginning and both aesthetically and conceptually things weren't so crystallized and so it was more like a, a sketch. It was more like a, a process. And I really supported Ed in showing them because I think it's also interesting for the audience to see the process of an artist and how they form their ideas and even their own aesthetics, you know, their vocabulary as aesthetics. Certain things eventually I tried to let go because they became too obvious, like the flag or, you know, and some things I kept and moved on with it, including calligraphy and 
And then the use of the feet, the hand, the lips, certain parts of the body that I really went with it, you know. But I never, for example, one of the images of the unveiling is an open chest of mine. I never did that again. <laughs> I was like, okay, that's not going to go very well. So I, I tried to also not be too ambitious in that way, uh, not too erotic. And so, you know, I started it and then I formed my boundaries right after. One last question on the portraits before moving on to the film installations. In the last seven years or so, since since 2012, are there portrait makers, be they painters or photographers, who you've been particularly looking at or talking with or whose work has been influential to you? I have to be honest. The answer is no, because, of course, I admire a lot of artists' work, a lot of um, it because of what they do, but I've never felt, at least consciously, that it was very influential on, on me. I mean, one could say, oh, well, maybe I was subconsciously inspired by Cindy Sherman when I did The Woman of Allah because they're self-portraits. But then I was really impressed by Frida Kahlo when she did self-portraits, you know. And so I think that the idea of self-portraitures was something that it may have somewhere along the line of my history of Western education, of art, I may have uh, been influenced without really being conscious of it. But when it came down to creating this group installations, you know, like I said, they became very narrative, they became very integral, almost impossible to see them separated, you know. That's something that came from my own conceptual evolution. Like, like I said, if you look at my videos, there's a lot of groups, you know, not only in Rapture, which is group of men versus a group of men. You have a lot of that in Fervor. You have it in Passage. Practically every video I've made has been a great use of an individual versus the group, you know. So I think those ideas really evolved from my own work where I was inspired to recreate something that I had done in my video now in photography. Let's pivot to the three recent video installations that are in the show. Um, Illusions and Mirrors from 2013, Roja from 2016, and the brand spanking new Land of Dreams, which you finished this very year, 2019. Before we get into them, I think it might be useful if we gave if we gave listeners a, a quick idea of what each um, is kind of about. So maybe we could go through them one by one, and you could just kind of quickly outline uh, what they are. Uh, first, illusions and mirrors. Illusions and mirrors. Roja and another video that is not in the exhibition. Sara created a, a kind of a trilogy of three dreams. And Roja was actually one of my own dreams. But I was really interested in creating three work that have um, basically used very similar, similar strategies, visual strategies in terms of giving an idea of entering a dream. For example, we use a lot of blurry images by putting glass over the camera or this idea of a single protagonist, a female protagonist wearing black, and each protagonist was having very 
unique, distinct anxieties that we pursued from the beginning to the end. But there was really no real logic, but a logic of a dream. For example, just to mention Roja, which is my own dream, uh, it's really based on the character of an Iranian woman first seen in an American theater among other Americans, listening to this man who's first singing a very emotional and beautiful song, but then turns into being very aggressive and sort of addressing her in fury and anger and it becomes very horrifying and she leaves the theater which is supposed to be this incredibly beautiful egg-shaped building and then she comes and she faces the desert where she sees her own mother running toward her and then she naturally runs toward her mother and then when she reaches her mother she slowly turns into a monstrous figure and presses her and she goes off in the air. For me, this relationship between this woman to that desert landscape and that mother figure clearly is about the motherland, uh, homeland, and the the fact that it doesn't want her, it doesn't accept her. There's very strong images of this mother figure coming through water, doing everything like a refugee, trying to get to her. But once they get close, then they're not able to be together. And and the, the, the anxiety about the American situation, where in one hand is very heartwarming and she relates to it, on the other hand, equally becomes very frightening and terrifying. So So it's like each video tries to convey a certain anxiety and emotion of a single female protagonist, where with the illusions of mirror is more existential. It's about her facing her own alter egos and hitting the bottom in order to be able to come out. It's, 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 a, it's a really a nightmare of a woman who feels lost and feels like she's losing her sanity. And with all of that, I became very interested in how, through making films that focus on dreams, you can still tackle sociopolitical issues as well as individual emotional issues, but do it in a way that is not, it's not possible to reduce it to a political discourse. You see what I mean? There's something about dreams that are really innocent and they're very powerful and very scary, but also something about dreams that feel very common human experience that doesn't seem to change drastically from a culture to another culture. We worry about abandonment, displacement, war, genocide. A lot of the dreams we have are very common. And so I felt like in my latest work that, you know, as you can see after a certain point, by moving towards surrealism, magic realism, dreams, it's a way to to expand my interest in making work that are far more universal, while still really, really tackling very specific sociopolitical issues of our times. Before we talk more about dreams and surrealism, I can't help but think of this new trilogy, the Dreamers trilogy, as as having a grandmother, as it were, as, as having kind of quite specifically descended from Tuba. Tuba is not quite about dreams, but one could... There is there is some reference to the individual and um, belonging and not belonging, walled spaces, who belongs within and without. 
are these three plus plus Sarah works picking up where Tuba left off in some way, or were they informed by your making of Tuba? Yeah, it's a very interesting observation. I'd never thought about it, but they're not that different. Of course, Tuba is highly stylized as well. It's not realistic. It's very true. It's about this feeling of displacement, this idea that you don't feel safe anywhere. You don't feel like you belong to anywhere. You constantly feel like an outcast and 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 that you're frightened at at every corner and and I think this feeling of course it's not unique anymore it's a lot for people who are immigrants people who are in exile people who don't even feel good in their own country I think it's 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 an experience that could be interpreted in many different ways you know and certainly it's a theme that has been running for me for the longest time because I am obviously a person who has not been at home for so many years and has been separated from her loved ones and so there's been an obsession about and oddly enough I just share a private thing is that for the longest time every dream that I had that was important my mother was in it in one way or another and in illusions and mirrors there's a mother figure in in also Roja there's a mother figure as if that's supposed to be the savior is supposed to be like in tuba that was the myth of Tuba, that woman in the, inside the tree was the savior. But once you got close to it, it disappeared. And here again in Roja, the mother figure was the savior, supposedly. But then the closer she got to her savior, she turned into a monster and eventually was very aggressive and you know threw her off. So I think there is this parallel themes that are running through many of my work, but I really feel that they there are shared nightmares, <laughs> I think. And it's interesting when we wrote this script for their land of dreams, and obviously talking to people from very distinct backgrounds, that was very confirmed for me that we really dream very much the same lines of of subjects. So about the Dreamers trilogy and kind of addressing not just dreams, but calling it the Dreamers Trilogy. In terms of uh, American federal policy, uh, President Obama created DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Protocol, in 2012, which created a group of American children known as Dreamers. Perhaps this is a reach, but is there any connection between your turning to dreams to address migration and belonging and the political language that emerged in America in 2012 and 2013, just as you were starting the series? Yeah, without a doubt, because, you know, there was so much absurdity in, in this project that I thought it was a plus. For example, America is a land of dreams you know, then you had the dreamers and then, you know, and then this woman was collecting dreams, you know, I felt that for a place that is supposed to be the land of dreams is just turning to be the opposite. Uh, and, and there was an irony in, in that, you know, uh, so it was definitely the way that we conceived the land of dreams, for example, was meant to be a satire, you know, and, and making fun of, of many things, you know, and, and that, the kind of disillusioning uh, image of America as a place that is no longer a land of dream, but it's just the opposite. And that how ironic that the country of U.S. and Iran are beginning to look more and more alike in many ways. 
So there is a lot of, would you say, puns attached to this. We talked about surrealism a moment ago, and surrealism is particularly present in 2013's Illusions and Mirrors, which I've been learning as we've been talking is a hard thing to say. <laughs> Why was surrealism interesting to you in, 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 in those years? Was there something about the politics of the time that awakened you to surrealism particularly? You know, I tell you why it happened, and I only came to this conclusion um, later, is that for so long when I was making work that were very directly political, like A Woman of Allah, or it was, I was so easily attacked, and, uh, and it was so difficult to talk about the work outside of the political discourse. In fact, very few people talked about the, the quality of the work itself. It, it just all became about the subject matter. Uh, and there was something about moving on with Woman of Allah and Woman of Without Men and other work that I did that was magic realism and moving towards surrealism. I mean, my work, a lot of it was stylized, but still had too much foot, I guess, in realism. But freeing myself from anything that is directly realistic and that cannot be reduced to a discussion that is pure realism gave me a lot of freedom. I felt like it's just not possible for people to attack me and say, well, your point of view, and I said, like, this is a dream. How could you, this is like, there's no logic in, in, no realistic logic, you know? So I felt that in many ways, it gave me a certain freedom that I didn't have um, before with the other work, no matter how much I try to be cautious of balancing it. So it's not disrespectful, it's not didactic or whatever it still remained almost entirely within a discourse was like if there were Iranian people criticized it for how they saw the revolution, if it was Westerners, how they saw the revolution, if it was about women, how they saw it. We never got to the artwork, you know? We never really got... Where with surrealism, and you, you really... You, you just cannot infuse that kind of direct judgment on the work. It just, it just won't allow it because you could say... It was a dream. I killed someone, you know, but I'm not guilty. <laughs> you know, it was bloody, but it was just a dream. So I guess my answer is that, yeah, it, it gave me so much more freedom in terms of artistically. All, all three of these works are very, very much about the United States. I think you've done that before. Tuba from 2002, as we discussed a moment ago, is, is very much about the United States and post 9-11 America. Indeed, for me, it's it's maybe the first really important American artwork about post 9-11 America. But even even given that one work from 2002, from did you have to have a conversation with yourself or a personal reckoning about whether or not you wanted to make a kind of 80 degree turn and devote six years to making works about the experience of life in these United States? Well, you know, it just, it happens very intuitively depending on what goes on in your life. And um, to be very honest, it was also at a point where I just felt like I really exhausted from, you know, making work about Iran, not having been there for so many years and then slowly going toward Egypt and then Azerbaijan and, you know, working in different corners of the world. And I just said, okay, finally, why can't I just work at home, which is U.S.? You know, I, I, I live here, and, and why do I have to always run away to Mexico or Morocco or Turkey or Egypt to make work? 
what about my experience here? And also, you know, it doesn't have to be about Iran, but it is still from an Iranian perspective, you know, and it just may be as valid or more valid. But also this is that moment in this country where we really could use some immigrants' perspective, you know. So it all became first kind of an ending of my nostalgia for Iran and, and really kind of sense of almost like a anger in terms of, okay, I'm never going to go back and just forget about it. Let's just close that chapter and, and then turn my attention to this place where I am. I live and there's so much to say about it. And, and it, it felt kind of liberating being, by being able to say goodbye to certain pattern of your own and embrace new directions and, and then challenging yourself to see what could I really manage to make a substantial work that still has strong emotions and resonance. And how would the audience, for example, now I'm in Azerbaijan, now I'm in Egypt, now I'm in New Mexico. But I think it, it really wasn't even a choice that I had to just sort of argue with myself. It was really organic. So to continue talking about how this newest series of films addresses America, there's one relationship between Land of Dreams from this year and The Last Word from 2003, 16 years ago, that um, really jumped out at me. In, in the, last, the Last Word, which is not in the exhibition at the Broad, is a meditation on on poetry making, on creative freedom in a patriarchal and dictatorial society in which the creation of culture is monitored and suppressed or threatened with suppression by, by the state. And it's pretty remarkable. So in Land of Dreams, we see someone who is cataloging photographs and portraits being summoned to a room in which uh, she is confronted with a patriarch um, sitting behind a desk with a, you know, book of authority uh, on the desk between the patriarchal figure and and the woman, just as we do in, in The Last Word. And there is a kind of threatening moment or menacing moment or, um, you know, something very like that anyway. So what is the relationship between what The Last Word builds to and to, and to the expression of state control in, in The Land of Dreams? Yeah, it's actually, you know, it's, uh, there's a lot of parallels. We borrowed a lot from that piece. In fact, the main actor who was the judge in the colony is the same guy who played the main role of the, the interrogator in The Last Word. I can't tell you how many times I looked at photographs um, of, of stills from those two pictures, 16 years apart, trying to be sure if that was true. <laughs> yeah, that is true. I mean, he's always the bad guy. The thing is that, yeah, the last word uh, really meant to, first of all, there were all these men in uniforms and, you know, doing strange things with all these documents and papers. And, you know, there were like absurd activity documenting evidence of poetry that they found subversive. And here now they're analyzing and, and, and sort of organizing the dreams and photographs of Americans. It's equally absurd. So we wanted this highly stylized situation set up that sort of really depicts this very totalitarian environment that it sort of mimics what we think of the Iranian government, which is, you know, pretty fanatic and very much about 
controlling people in terms of censorship and taking away freedom of expression, etc. So this is very much inspired what we try to build, uh, even the production design at the colony. It's very much inspired by our, our own creation <laughs> at the last word, but of course much vaster because we took a whole power plant in New Mexico and turned it into uh, the colony and it had multiple mazes of spaces that was really fun to those, dress those up. Those spaces reminded me of the spaces in the last word too, for that matter. Yes, and we. I also personally looked a lot at Orson Welles' The Trial or, you know, all this, the Kafka's, you know, it was like we talked about how we can push that absurdity to the next level. and But we obviously learned a lot about certain things that we really did enjoy a lot uh, from the last words. And finally, uh, this is such a simple question, I'm almost embarrassed about it. Tuba was in color, Tuba 2002, and you've been dedicated to black and white um, in whatever medium almost entirely since with the occasional splash of, of red here and there. Why such dedication to black and white? You know, I have to say that, for example, in the case of Tuba, or let's say some of my earlier work like Passage or Soliloquy or Woman Without Men, I felt that you really needed the color. For example, if you think aesthetically, like Tuba was about the relationship of these people in black moving towards landscape, which was, you know, a little bit of color. And if they were all black and white, you that distinction, that separation between the two would be would have been lost. And the same went for soliloquy, which the woman was always in black and the landscape was in color. So there was a very direct relationship between what the concept was and why the color was used. It's the same with passage, where you have the woman in black, the men in black, they bring in this corpse in white to this landscape that was, you know, the desert and the water and you know so there was a really a visual reason for that and we felt like if that was those were shot in black and white they would not have worked but there is something about the return to black and white with the illusions and mirrors and roja sara and land of dreams that i felt that there was no reason to to separate and somehow the black and white nature landscape worked perfectly with the people, you know, and, and I just felt that also it really sort of resonated with some of my earlier videos, like turbulent and rapture and fervor, you know, in the way that even though now you have a protagonist and so there's much more of a storytelling, much more cinematic, there's still very lyrical and visually very minimal. And, and the story could be all told in a black and white setup, you know, and I really feel that there's some timelessness about it and also when you think about the landscape the american landscape and how beautiful the desert is in black and white <laughs> i have to say that you you know that in color would be just too overwhelmingly beautiful uh, in a way that would be too seductive and distracting you know in a way unfortunately in movie making in cinema it's really a problem when you shoot in black and white they just don't like it but i generally although i just said gorgeous film called Lighthouse that is with William Dafoe. It's absolutely beautifully shot in black and white. So anyway, I just feel that it, it's just more complete when it's black and white. It's more, you know, it's much more unity in, in the aesthetic and the storytelling. Shereen Nishat, 
thanks for this and indeed for having been willing to talk to me so much over the last 15 years. <laughs> and thank you, Tyler, for I think you know my work better than many, many, many people that I can think of. And I hope I haven't disappointed you over the years. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Larry Pittman Declaration of Independence, the most comprehensive retrospective to date of the work of the prolific painter. Organized by Hammer Chief Curator Connie Butler, the exhibition features nearly 80 paintings and 50 works on paper spanning Pittman's entire career. A selection of Pittman's drawings will comprise Orangerie, a standalone installation providing an intimate space for viewing Pittman's works on paper. Larry Pittman, Declaration of Independence, is on view September 29th, 2019, through January 5th, 2020. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Visit the Nasher Sculpture Center through January 5th to see Elmgreen and Dragset Sculptures, the Scandinavian duo's first major museum presentation in the U.S. Throughout the exhibition, the artists utilize sculpture, performances, and site-specific installations in the Nasher's galleries and garden to reinterpret familiar designs found in everyday life, emphasizing personal, social, and political issues. Learn more at nashersculpturecenter.org. And we're back. Melissa Biron, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi, Tyler. It's a pleasure to be here. Tiso was born Jacques-Joseph Tiso in Brittany, but we know him as James, one of many such dualities, if you will, in his life and career. How does Tiso come to be James, and why did he have and want to have careers in two countries? Well, I think that Tiso, uh, much like myself, may have been quite an Anglophile from early in his life, and so he changes his name from Jacques, as you say, to James in the 1860s. And I think that he really was fascinated by British art and culture uh, as a young man. I think also his friendship with James McNeil Whistler may have played a part in this. But I think you highlight a really interesting part of what makes Tiso so fascinating to me, the fact that he really, in a way, becomes uncategorizable. He's a French artist, but such a significant period of his life and career is spent in England. He is not an Impressionist, but he's not a realist. He is a painter of high society, but he's also a painter of religion and faith. And so I think that these kind of fluid margins in which he's moving consistently make him challenging to categorize and, and may be a part of why he's not as well known today in the 21st century. You noted that he was not an Impressionist, but he was of the Impressionist's generation. So, for example, he was 38 years old or so when the first Impressionist exhibition was held, but he never joined, joined the club, so to speak. Why not? Why did he resist or go another way? And what does that tell us about him and how he thought of his work? Well, we know that he is invited by Edgar Degas to exhibit in the first Impressionist group show. And sort of frustratingly, we have... Degas' letter inviting Tissot to participate, but it's at a moment when Tissot is very much part of the British art world. He has moved to London around 1871 after the Franco-Prussian War. In which he served. We'll come to that later. 
Yes, exactly. So he has really set up a base for himself in London. And I think when Degas writes him this letter, we don't have Tissot's response, so we don't know exactly why he chooses not to participate. Hopefully someday that may be found, but we don't have that yet. So we have Degas saying, you know, this is really your patriotic national duty to come and participate with us. This is going to be a very ambitious project. Won't you please come back and, and be a part of this? And Tissot doesn't choose to participate. And I suspect that he he just really had such a strong commercial base in London. He's kind of a world away. He's doing other things. And although he so often appears in the 20th and 21st century in exhibitions that are about the Impressionist movement more broadly, he really never identifies with them. And I think also that he was an artist who who sort of, he's not a loner, but he really just likes to do his own thing. And I think this kind of group project wasn't something that he was, was interested in doing. It's interesting because it seems at least to me, a non-expert, like he's paying attention to what the group, or at least painters in the group that we will later know as the Impressionists are doing. Because it feels to me like Tissot's first major painting, or at least an important pivot in his work, is a painting from 1865 titled Spring. Uh, we'll have it on manpodcast.com. It shows two fashionably dressed women reclining on, on grass below blossoming cherry trees. There's a third woman there, too, if you look carefully. She's not reclining on the grass. Where does that painting come from? And was it, you know, air quotes, a success? Well, I think actually that at the, this moment in Tiso's career, he's really thinking more about Japanese art. And he is very much part of the milieu of artists who is, is really influenced by the opening of the port of Japan in the 1850s and, and making Asian art available to Western artists. And we know that in addition to painting beautiful Asian objects in his works, he's also collecting these materials. And there's this wonderful letter that I quote often that Dante Gabriel Rossetti, the British pre-Raphaelite artist, writes back from Paris to his mother. He's gone to a shop called the Porte Chinoise, and he's trying to buy some kimonos. And he says, you know, I'm so frustrated. This is really annoying. I went to go buy some kimonos today, and Tissot has actually snapped everything up. That annoying Tissot, he got there before me. And so I, I love this idea of the kind of rivalry between artists collecting, both, I think, in their own making of work, but in what they're trying to surround themselves with. So I see Spring as a painting that really is is responding more toward Japanese and sort of that kind of aesthetic of a really flattened picture plane. But definitely the aspects that I think would connect to Impressionism probably are the fact that the, the young women are en plein air, they're painted outside. But I see Tissot as an artist who is flirting with some of the, the elements of Impressionism. And when you see his paintings in person, this idea that he has a kind of licked finish or photographic realism that is so precise, it's there, but he also can paint like an Impressionist if he wants to. And I think our self-portrait from the Fine Arts Museum's collection, circa 1865, self-portrait of Tissot when he's around 29 years old, really demonstrates that kind of, that ability to paint loosely and with a broad brushstroke and in a very kind of bold and ambitious way. He just chooses not to do that. That's not the aesthetic that he wants to make his, his name with. Like seemingly everyone else in mid-19th century Western Europe, Tissot is looking at prints and other objects such as kimonos from Japan. Is his use of them in his paintings different or distinctive from the way artists in, in France or England are using them? 
Well, one of the hallmarks that I think is so quintessential Tissot and the way that he is responding to these objects is that he he must have been looking at the actual objects. And that's not to say that other artists weren't, but I think the fact that he records these objects with the kind of minutia and attention to detail that is so classic Tissot, I think that that's something that really shows up in his paintings. And one of the big and exciting discoveries for our research in this project, along with my colleagues from the Musée d'Orsay, was to discover in the chateau where Tissot lived for the final decades of his life, one of the Japanese screens that appears in a painting, a portrait of the Marquise of Miramont from the Getty Collection in Los Angeles. It had long been thought that the screen screen behind the marquees, which shows cranes on a gold background. It was thought that that, cra- that that screen might have been in the collection of the marquees, but we've actually found the real screen in Tissot's home and chateau. So I think that he was surrounding himself with these objects and wanting to record them with a kind of precision and exactitude that is, is so classic Tissot. His portraits, there are you know six or eight of them in the show have a certain Angra-like cool to them, right down to the comfortable but very luxurious backgrounds, that screen. And as he continues making portraits over the course of his career, he seems to allow or at least portray his sitters as a bit more relaxed, but the settings grow grander, which is kind of a specific difference from the portraits of, say, Manet or Degas, who, who use these neutral flat backgrounds. Do you think Tissot is consciously zagging away from the portraiture practice of his French peers as a mark of differentiation, or does he just simply have different interests? Well, I think Tissot throughout his career is an artist who is very attuned to the market. And you see that in his earliest portraits, in fact, actually are not technically portraits. So the portrait of Mademoiselle LL or the portrait of two sisters. He puts portrait on the title of these paintings, although the sisters in the paintings have not commissioned these works from him. But he knows if he puts these works out into the French art market and if they are received well, he will attract very influential and aristocratic and successful entrepreneurial clients. So I think for Tissot, the practice of making portraits is both about the beauty of painting and painting beautiful people in beautiful settings, but also about making sure that his work continues to be seen and that he is continuously sought out as an artist who can make these really wonderful, extravagant and luxurious paintings. Definitely extravagant, definitely luxurious. And as we've both noted a couple times, they are all of these paintings, not, not just the portraits are full of stuff, full of detail, of fashion, of place, of views out windows. I mean, they're almost manic in their uh, up-against-the-picture-plane, almost bursting detail and color and all that. So there's a temptation to say that they're Victorian and they're cram-it-all in fussiness, which begs the question, are we looking at, are we seeing London's impact on Tissot, or is that is that kind of reading in a cliché? <laughs> I think that Tiso really is a, a more is more kind of painter, and what I've reveled at in in having the opportunity to spend so many years looking at his paintings, I think that he he really is a very generous artist. He gives you a lot of a lot of detail, a lot of depth in his paintings. There are meanings behind meanings. I think that from an early age he must have been 
quite aware of British aesthetics and an artist who, although French, is sort of thinking about England and, and English style conversation pieces and portraits. But I think that his ability to give us these worlds in which you can immerse yourself and sort of lose yourself is something that's really rewarding. And it's it's just a pleasure to get to see visitors now experiencing that in our galleries, that there's so much to look at. Every time you go in to look at the paintings in the, in the galleries, there's just more that they give back. So I think that Tissot is, is quite a Victorianist, but I, I don't know if he would have accepted that labeling for himself. I mentioned earlier that Tissot's 1865 painting Spring reminded me of the, the Manet and kind of impressionist standard of folks having lunch on the grass, as it were. And, and indeed, that 1865 picture is kind of compositionally similar to Manet's 1863 picture. So maybe taking Tissot's 1875 Spring Morning as an example, is he looking at Monet and that painting without painting like Monet without being an Impressionist? Do you think he's aware of, engaging, but very much on, on his own terms? I struggle a bit with how to frame Tissot within the Impressionist moment, because I think for Tissot, what was happening in France, I'm, I'm sure he was aware. I know he would have been aware. And we know that Degas is telling him what's happening and, and wanting him to participate. But I really don't think that he had a kind of any kind of personal pull to be an impressionist artist. I think if he had wanted to paint like them, he certainly could have, but I think that this the kind of 21st century desire to put 19th century artists into the category of impressionism or frame them around impressionism is something that it's it's really challenging because I think also for visitors coming to exhibitions about French artists of the 19th century, that's a very natural thing to kind of want to base them in an impressionist language. But I really think that he, he was doing something very different throughout his career. And I think that his, his desire to create across media is something that really kind of is a compelling force for him throughout his career, but I think that he was just so on his own path and, and making the kind of art that he wanted to make that I don't necessarily see him in dialogue with the Impressionists, but there are moments, and there's a painting from the National Gallery of Canada. It's called the the Partie Carré, the, the foursome, and it's you, you can't look at that painting without thinking of the Déjeuner sur l'air by Manet. And of course, you know, arguably is, is where does Manet fall in the milieu of the Impressionists as well as kind of a, a big question too. So I think that Tissot is, is participating to a certain degree in awareness of the Impressionist moment and movement, but he really is an artist who, who doesn't subscribe to that campaign. There's an 1875 painting in the show that maybe more directly suggests who he's hanging around with and looking at, and that's the Thames. What is Tissot's relationship with Whistler, and is this painting a specific engagement with Whistler's whapping on the whapping on Thames of, of a decade or so earlier? Yes, so Tissot and Whistler definitely know each other. They're definitely friends for a moment, and when Whistler is embroiled in the Ruskin-Whistler legal dispute, Whistler comes to Tissot and says, will you please testify on my behalf? I'd really appreciate it if you could could sort of stand up for me and, and say that this 
accusation of libel that I put against Ruskin is something that you agree with. And again, we have Whistler letters to Tissot and to date have not found Tissot's responses saying why he doesn't want to do that. There's some speculation possibly that he might have what we would call today sort of like PTSD after the Franco-Prussian War and that he's just not interested in in this kind of public spectacle of, of a trial. But Whistler gets really annoyed and really mad at Tissot for not participating in this. And I suppose I'm I'm sympathetic to do so for obvious reasons, but I, I think that, you know, he, he basically is, is suggesting I will, I'll do whatever you need to do. I'll write you a letter sort of privately and, and you can submit that, but I just don't want to be part of this public trial. So they're really close. I mean, they're close enough that Whistler would reach out to him in a moment like this. And I think that when Tissot is coming to, to London, Whistler is an obvious person for him to think about aesthetically and, and personally as a friend. And they, they had known each other in Paris in the 1860s. And I think that, that Whistler was somebody that was an obvious touchstone for him in his 11 years in London. And Thames is, is such a great painting, especially in the way that it's, it's situated with other pictures of the Thames from the same period in our exhibition. But you see that this particular painting for Tissot, I think, is very much about social codes and social engagement. You have two women and one man on a boat, and you have three bottles of champagne. So it was a pretty scandalous painting for the times that what are they going to get up to on this boat? But there's also a kind of social realism happening in the background. There's a, a very polluted river, a very dense and dark gray sky. And I think that Tissot is both an artist who can paint exquisitely beautiful portraits and, and scenes that sometimes may seem sort of frivolous, but there is a kind of a depth and, and an ability to capture the moment and the mood and, and a kind of almost ecological awareness that he's really responding to the, the controversy of industrialization and, and what that's doing to people in the city of London. The dress of one of the two women in the Thames is is pretty terrific. It's much more loosely painted than than everything else in the painting, except uh, maybe the water. And I'm going to use it as a transition into, oh my gosh, how much does Tiso love painting dresses? There's there's a, a a super essay in the catalog by Justine DeYoung about how and why and the recurrence of certain dresses and kinds of dresses across Tiso's oeuvre. So at the risk of asking a, a slightly simplistic question, why do you think he loves painting dresses and fashion so much? We know that Tissot was born into a very entrepreneurial family and that his parents owned a textile business. And until our project, Tissot's mother had always been referred to as a milliner, so a maker of hats. But we actually found in the research for this project, and it's written about in one of the essays in our catalog um, by Cyril Siama about Tissot's early years in Nantes, we found in, Cyril found in the records in Nantes that it was Tissot's mother who was registered as the proprietress of the store. So I think that's it's a really wonderful discovery because it reclaimed some agency for his mother and her role in the family business. But from a young age, Tiso would have been surrounded by beautiful textiles, fashion, ribbons, hats. I think he grew up in a very elegant world in that sense. And so it's something that he 
definitely naturally gravitates toward. And you see certain dresses iterate and reappear and and sort of have their moments in Tissot's paintings. But the idea that he was only a painter that could make images of fashionable women is something that we really tried to dispel in our project because he is so much more than that. He's a painter who can paint fashionable men, but he is also a painter who at the end of his life is best known and most commercially successful for making a massive series of religious illustrations. So he is an artist for whom fashion is is a recurrent motif, but not something that he exclusively is able to, to make. I want to come back to those religious illustrations in a moment, but one more thing on dresses. There is uh, a painting from 1877-78 titled The Gala Day Seaside, in which Tissot seems to equivalize a, a ruffled, flowing, kind of backlit dress of a woman walking on a sidewalk and the national flags of, of many nations behind her. What what do we think he's saying in that painting? Is it fair to describe him as kind of equalizing fashion and nationhood almost there? <laughs> Actually, Tissot plants a lot of clues in his paintings. And so if you can read the maritime language of flags, he's often giving some hints as to either the people in his paintings or what might be happening in, in the flags of the paintings. There's another great picture that uses that code, and it's, it's called uh, The Captain's Daughter. Uh, and I don't want to give too much away because it's actually the suggestion of, of another scholar who has yet to publish this idea. But if you look at the pattern on the woman's sleeves, you can read something into the code there. So I think that this is Tissot's very subtle and wonderful sense of humor, that he is able to give clues that if you really know what you're looking for, and that's a very Victorian way of of, of kind of messaging and paintings, but there are these, these elements and clues that are they're very sophisticated, but they're subtle. And I think that Tissot's paintings so often have an element of, of humor, but it's a, it's a kind of subtle humor. And once you get it, it's pretty overt. One of my favorite paintings that has that, that element is the painting called Too Early, which is a social code that one, not, one must not break of arriving just a little fashionably early to a social event. And even the maids who are peeking out from behind the corner of um, a door in the background are sort of chuckling because these guests, presumably nouveau Riche, maybe one of their first social engagements in a major metropolitan setting have come just a little bit too early to the social occasion and it's very awkward for everybody and and Tissot's so good at at giving that kind of depth of of humor and I I think also as a, a French artist painting for a British market, he was sometimes, I think, viewed with a little bit of skepticism. You know, what is this What is this French artist doing in a British climate? Is he making fun of us? Is he sort of one of us? Where do we place him? And I think this ability for Tito to always be a little bit on the fringes of kind of taking it a little too far is something that it's a fine line that he walks very subtly. We mentioned the Franco-Prussian War a little bit ago. Unlike a lot of Parisian artists, many of whom fled to London, Tissot fights in the war. Um, it's 1870-71, of course. Did that have an impact on his work, either immediately or later? Definitely. So he, unlike some artists like Monet and Pizarro, who leave France for 
sort of understandable reasons. They have families and, and children that they're thinking about at that moment and and have have justifiable reasons to leave. But Tiso stays along with artists like Degas and Manet, and he's a sharpshooter in the Franco-Prussian War. He's really on the front lines. He makes a number of very immediate sketches of what he's observing. And I think for me, that's something that gives us a lot of insight into Tiso's psyche in the sense that he is an almost obsessive, compulsive maker. He can't help himself. He gets himself into a little bit of trouble because he does make a sketch of of a friend of, of the group that has been killed. And he's criticized and, and Degas kind of says, well, how could you do that? You know, you should have been taking the body and moving it and not taking the time to record and sketch it. But I think in a way it's Tiso's ability to, or maybe it's kind of a coping mechanism that he's trying to process what he's experiencing. And you see that a lot too in in paintings. I'm sort of jumping chronologically, but when you see his relationship evolve with Kathleen Newton, Mrs. Newton, uh, the woman with whom he has a a six-year very intense and, and deep and, as far as we can tell, very serious relationship with, when she's dying of tuberculosis about age 27 to 28, she dies in 1882, you see him making paintings of her getting progressively sicker and, and more closer to death. And I think that really it's it's his it's his language of trying to process trauma and grief. And I may be overstepping here as an as an art historian, but I think that he is someone who just has to make things and it's his way of responding to what's happening in his life and, and the world around him. There are two particularly good examples of that in the show from eighty one eighty two one titled Mrs. Newton resting on a chaise lounge and another titled Summer Evening that's also known as The Dreamer. And we'll have those two on uh, manpodcast.com. Late in Tiso's career, he turns toward spiritualism and toward uh, the Holy Land with uh, great focus, intensity, and to the seeming uh, exclusion of all else. <laughs> They are not my favorite Tissot's, but you write in the catalog that the contemporary response to them, especially the American response to them, was something else entirely. Why is Tissot interested in spiritualism in the Holy Land in, at the end of his career, and what is the audience and market response to them? Well, I might reveal a little bit of my own academic bias in saying that these watercolors are the subject of my PhD thesis, so they arguably are part of my <laughs> most favorite. Um, it's really hard to say what uh, what's my most favorite moment in Tissot's life and career and body of work, but I do have a particular affinity for these works, and I was drawn to them, and I think they're fascinating because they are the work for which Tissot is least well-known. If you know Tissot and you think about his work, is so often associated with fashionable society and beautiful women, elegant men. But there is this this later part of his career that is just a kind of fascinating revelation. I think, though, that if you start with Tiso early in his life, one of the, the earliest sets of paintings that he makes is a reference to the biblical parable of the prodigal son. That's a series that he returns to again in 1880, making the, the prodigal son in modern life. So the idea that he never painted or responded to religious subjects is is a, really a misnomer, that he is definitely an artist who, who comes back to that later in his career. But he has this 
moment of of mystical and religious revelation. It's following Mrs. Newton's death in 1882. He returns to France and he begins to make a series of paintings that he calls the women of Paris. So he is he's met with a little skepticism when he returns from England to France. Um, and he says, well, I'll do something that only a typical French artist can do. I'll paint the most iconic women of Paris. He makes 15 large-scale paintings. He's planning to have contemporary author write short stories that will elucidate what's happening in the paintings. This project gets cut short when he's in the Church of Saint-Sulpice in Paris, and he has what he describes as a religious revelation. At the same moment, he is also attending spiritualist seances. Like many artists and, and, and people of the late 19th century, he is caught up in this movement that effectively is a question that we're still trying to answer today. What happens after you die? Is there life after death? Can you communicate with your loved ones across temporal and spiritual planes. So he's trying to contact Mrs. Newton, and he has what he describes as a mystical vision of her appearance at a particular seance. And it's at this moment that he decides that he will really change the course of his life, and he will go to the Holy Land three times to do some empirical research to investigate costumes and places. And he makes a massive and ambitious group of watercolors illustrating the life of Christ. And he makes 350 watercolors that are exhibited in Paris and London. They tour the United States. They're hugely successful. This is really the work for which Tissot makes himself even more famous at the end of his career. And it's sort of a wonderful story, too, because this entire set of, of New Testament watercolors is purchased by the Brooklyn Museum of Art in 1900 by public subscription, so effectively a GoFundMe campaign around 1900. They raise $60,000 through the community, which effectively by today's standards is about $1.8 million to buy this body of work for the Brooklyn Museum. Museum of Art. They're on display for, for many years, and they have a, a major impact on early cinema. And that, to me, is, is another one of the, the marvelous things about Tissot as an artist, that he, throughout his career, is such a strong visual storyteller. And I think for him to have made these kind of I sort of I call them proto-cinematic, but almost photo-cinematic images illustrating the Bible at a time before that kind of visual language is really something that anyone is very fluent in. It's almost like he's created the film stills for a major biblical motion picture before that existed. And so it, it's really natural for many filmmakers in the 20th and 21st century to gravitate toward these, these images because Tiso has done a lot of the homework for filmmakers. And I hope that when he comes to the exhibition, maybe maybe it'll change your mind about them. Although it's it's interesting that it was Americans that particularly responded to them, because of course, American artists paint a lot of Rome and Italy in the 1850s and 60s, in part an address of American republicanism, especially at its moment of crisis in the 1860s. And that for many of them, such as church, it becomes more an opportunity to to paint faith. And that Tiso either just was there on his own or picked up on that from from his attention to the market and, and goes whole hog. I think you're exactly right about that. I think that Tiso 
was so attuned to the zeitgeist of his moment. He knew that there was a major religious moment of, of revival. And I think that he was aware that if he produced this series of work, it would find a home in the market. But I think that, again, we go back to what we were saying at the beginning of the conversation, that he is an artist of dualities. So he's both someone who sees that this is work that will help him be more successful and famous. But I think he really did have. I mean, you don't go to the Holy Land three times. It's a major thing to do today. And by any means, in, in the late 19th century, definitely more challenging trip to make. And, and I don't think you do that and devote 17 years of your life to a, a campaign like this if you don't have some personal sense of conviction that this is what you're supposed to be doing. And again, I may be overstepping in my interpretation here, but I think that Tiso really was returning to something that he had explored early in his career. He did come from a very religious family. He was raised in the Catholic faith. And his return to this at the end of his life, after he's had a series of, of personal losses and traumas, I think is not not so surprising in a way. But I, I do think that it's fascinating that this work is is kind of hidden or has been hidden away and really not something that previous scholars working on TSO have have embraced. And I just think you can't ignore it. I mean, it's it's so obvious that this was something that he he wanted to be the final exclamation point on his career and the fact that it lives on in in contemporary film. My favorite example is that, so after Tiso makes the New Testament series and it's so successful, it's gone to Brooklyn, he decides that he will make illustrations for the Old Testament. And he begins that campaign. He doesn't finish it before he dies. All of those watercolors, um, or the majority of them, have ended up in the Jewish Museum in New York. Also very fascinating that all of Tiso's biblical watercolors, for the most part, are in the boroughs of, of New York. But the kind of most interesting, in a way, footnote for Tiso's biblical illustrations is that he makes a couple of illustrations that show the Ark of the Covenant. And there was an exhibition of the Old Testament watercolors at the Jewish Museum in the early 1980s. And it's thought that someone associated with Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark probably saw this exhibition because indeed the Ark of the Covenant that Indiana Jones finds in the film is based on the prototype that Tissot illustrates in his watercolors. So I often say to, to people, if you haven't heard of Tissot, you've probably seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. So in fact, you already know Tissot, even though you didn't realize that you'd met him before. Oh my God, and it probably gives us George Lucas's new museum. <laughs> I have it on good authority that the film props, yes, um, may make an appearance when that museum opens. <laughs> Melissa Buron, thanks very much. Thank you, Tyler. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.